Hey everyone, before we begin first episode of season 7, I wanted to say a few things. First, I recorded this episode before the news came out about Condenast, their discriminatory behavior towards their employees of color, and subsequently the way our today's guest Shruti Ganguly was treated, especially in terms of her work with 73 questions. I felt this was important to say because I asked Shruti about 73 questions in this interview and at the time I did not know and I want to be clear on where immigrantly stands on this issue. Shruti and the rest of the people who have been affected by Continest have our full unwavering support. Unfortunately, the stories at Continest are not an anomaly. in any professional industry we hope that continuest understands that changes are mandatory and hopefully other companies and organizations will look at this and reflect on how they can improve themselves and now to our latest episode enjoy Welcome back everyone. Season 7. Can you believe it? Quite honestly, I am still wrapping my head around this milestone. And what started off as a timid yet valuable idea of mine to feature voices of immigrants and capture the nitty-gritties of our existence has launched into a full-blown multi-season podcast with you listeners propelling it forward. I have been humbled by the conversations had, challenged by the individuals met, and above all, emboldened by you all to continue this important work. And it is with a renewed commitment that Immigrantly returns with season seven. And believe me, I feel it in my bones. It is going to be the best yet. Now, today's guest for the podcast is Shruti Ganguly. She is an award-winning filmmaker whose work has been featured globally at festivals like Sundance, Venice, and AFI. Shruti recently launched her own production company, Honto 88, and its clients are just as impressive, including media outlets like MTV. And behind the glitz and the glam is just your neighborly city girl with intense wonder and drive. Shruti believes in creating art that is brave and purposeful which shows the strength of women and other minority communities and she's no doubt making a huge wave. Her journey to this present moment is like ours, complicated and far from straight. So grab some popcorn, find a nice spot on the couch or double tie those laces for a long engaged walk. and join me in welcoming shruti ganguly the thing that i then found strange eventually was this notion of sticking in your lane and i'm a producer and a director and a writer and i feel very comfortable with all of those things but sometimes the industry doesn't necessarily want to acknowledge or celebrate that and it's about it's this idea of feeling scattered 
and I don't believe in any of that. And I can definitely tell you that the team that works with me at Honto 88 don't fit in those boxes either. Shruti, thank you so much for coming on Immigrantly. Thank you so much for having me. So there's so much to unpack and I'm so excited to learn about your work, your activism and your story. And as I was prepping for this interview, I was basically stalking you um, everywhere. I've looked up your social media. I've seen your interviews, um, your video clips, and I was really impressed. Um, so you have done a lot of work, right? There is your filmmaking, your um, time at the White House, video campaigns, um, so much. So here's what I want to do. I want to open up the floor so that you can tell about yourself, your upbringing, and what you see as important details that listeners should know. Oh, wow. There's um, a lot for me to even unpack. I didn't realize I was, uh, this was also going to be a therapy session. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but I will also just kind of clarify that the time at the White House was more, I was just on a committee and it was in a different White House time under Obama, not the current situation. Yeah, sorry, I should have said that uh, Obama White House. I should have specified that. All good, all good. It is It is definitely a circus right now. And it's. let's see how this upcoming election goes. So yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, I guess, what you've read, what's there already, and in terms of like, I guess my story, in many ways, you know, your podcast is called Immigrantly. And I think it just goes into this deeper idea of um, really how our immigrant experiences really affect who we are and add to the foundation of who we become. And I would definitely say that that movement and migration has been a big influence in terms of the type of films and television and content that we're making, and also just even in terms of, let's say, the activism element. And for me, I was born in New Delhi in India, half Bengali, half Anglo-Indian. And then we moved to the Middle East when I was two years old and to Oman. And then I grew up um, in Oman and then ultimately went to boarding school in in India, in the Himalayas, to an international school. And my best friends who I lived with were Russian and Australian. And then I ended up going to Northwestern near Chicago and then came to New York, was living and working in New York, went to grad school there, and really have lived in the US for nearly 20 years. And now I'm currently waiting my immigration papers in Norway. So I would say that even when I reflect during this um, coronavirus time, the choice of being here, it has been a really interesting reflection on where I've been and where we've all been. So you mentioned Northwestern and you studied with initial plans in finance, right? Before pivoting to a completely different field in the arts which many would have deemed at the time as a risky move. But Shruti, why did you decide to pivot A? And why did you initially choose finance? Was it because you wanted to uh, fit into this box that 
other people define for us and what other people's expectations are from us? I mean, in a way, you've kind of answered it. I think growing up in Oman, a lot of the people I knew growing up who were really smart and very successful and that idea of what success is were, you know, in finance and in banking or consulting. And if you were good at school and you were on the commerce track, that's kind of what you did. But I always loved the arts and I loved music and I loved dance and painting and writing poetry. And I read constantly. I used to go on camping trips when I was a kid with at least a couple of books. And my friends used to really make fun of me for that. And I mean, in a way, I really, I love the arts. I really wanted to go to art school and be a painter. But there was, you know, obviously, I think a more traditional notion of, well, do something that feels like it's, uh, you can always have a plan B. I think that's the interesting idea is that if you take something that has this notion of what being more technical, not soft skills, even though when you do think about art and you think about the greatest art, the greatest artists were scientists, philosophers, mathematicians. So I think that there's this understanding that art and is so different from science and commerce, but I don't think it really is ultimately. But when I went to school at Northwestern, I was doing economics and I was studying painting as well. And I'd say that the real um, change really and the shift happened was my cousin's sister, who I was incredibly close to and we grew up together. She had made the arts her career, you know, while I made it my hobby. And we were very close. And when I was 19 and she was 20 and she was I'd say like a rising star in India at the time, she was tragically killed in a car accident. And so it became this really big moment, I'd say, in my young life to uh, be able to reflect and have this realization that you only get one life and what is worth living for. And I'd say that year, I, which felt like a really big haze of grief and trying to navigate being away, being in school, being away from my family was the time I needed to really recognize that I needed to be braver with what I wanted to do. And I knew I really didn't want to go into finance. I had had internships at the National Bank of Oman and then at Ernst & Young. And those were wonderful opportunities, but that really wasn't me. And then my internship started to change. My classes started to evolve. And I took a class from a visiting professor uh, from Bombay called Women in Indian Cinema. And it was the first time I watched Satyajit Ray's Bhatar Panchali. And I would say that's the movie that really changed my life. And it showed me that film had everything that I really loved. But it also, what I, you know is imp incredible and important about that movie is that it also shows how you can really use cinema to educate, to inform, and to change opinions, that it's really powerful. It's not just entertainment. And in a time like now, where you're really aware of inequality that exists, especially in, during the times of coronavirus, and you're seeing what's happening to migrant workers and people who don't have the means, a film like Bhatar Panchali is really a testament to how we need to turn our lenses as filmmakers and creators towards these stories that really need a lot more, you know, collective voices.
speaking for it. And you have done that. I was watching your hashtag my sentence series, which you created for Obama administration. And it basically narrates stories of clemency recipients, right? What interested me in that series was that those stories were narrated by celebrities instead of those recipients themselves. Shruti, was there a reason why you chose that path? And what was the creative process behind that? So when we were part of this committee under the Obama administration, and it was several months before the election, we got a question saying, can, can you guys think of ideas around Obama's clemency initiatives and so on? And, you know, in terms of something creative. And so I took a very simple idea, which was talking to people who were incarcerated and had been given life in prison for nonviolent crimes. And many of them had been in jail for anywhere from 17 to 22 years or yeah, 25 years in some cases. And they told myself and my producer, Neil Gladstone, their stories. And knowing that America is very celebrity obsessed, that is really what became the additional part of that formula, that we would take these stories with their permission, edit it down, always make sure that the people we interviewed felt like we had been true to even the edited versions of their stories. It's amazing how different your story can end up. And given how personal these were, it's really important for us to be really responsible, even in the process of making things. And so... Then we got, as, as you know, more famous, recognizable faces to say these stories, looking at the cameras, if it were their own. And we worked with incredible people like Ludacris and Gaburi Sidibe and Monica and Tim Robbins. Not long after my youngest son was born, he was diagnosed with a rare syndrome that wreaked havoc on his immune system. Then our insurance company dropped us soon after my son got sick. For the first year, we tried to raise money for the transplant through donations and grants and talked to everyone, tried everything, and got up to $102,000. That money was enough to get my son the operation. Transplant wasn't completely successful, but I still owed $150,000. The money I could make transporting meth was a big come up for me. Normally I hauled cattle and produce in my truck and after expenses made about $1,500 round trip. The extra thousands helped cover the bills. And push a T. And what was really important for us was that the people we had interviewed really felt like they had been heard and they had been represented. It's one thing for us as filmmakers to get really caught up in our own ideas and not respect, you know, the... <laughs> the actual process and the people, but, and I've seen that happen time and time again, but that is really important to my work is to just make sure that even the people we collaborate with closely feel like they've been heard and that we've done them justice. And that's such an important point because you've talked about it in other interviews as well. There is one thing to create the content and how content is distributed and shared makes a huge difference. And as you said, you did it extremely effectively through celebrities. 
and sometimes as an indie podcaster i'm struggling with this idea or notion of how to bring my content uh, forth to people right so on the one hand i want to narrate um stories of ordinary people who are doing extraordinary work but at the same time i am also trying to bring in voices of more prominent people like yourself right and the idea goes back to how do we strike a balance between creating content that is purposed for social change but at the same time do it in a way which is more effective yeah no absolutely i mean look i don't think i'm very important and i think you should definitely interview more interesting people who, who <laughs> may not be like you know have credits with anyone famous per se but who've lived extraordinary lives and the fun part about you know my job and i'd say even yours as someone who asks questions is that you get to really connect with different strangers and as much as i've worked primarily in narrative film or videos with various celebrities i've been able to work on several short documentaries and now feature doc where i've been able to spend time with an incredible group of people who i would say have really changed my life Uh, Shruti, I was looking at your production company's website, Honto eighty eight, and the thing that really struck me was how you define your work. It's called brave filmmaking, right? How would you define brave? And is there a moment when you were bravest in your life? Wow, two big questions. Um, so uh, let me work on the first one, which is how would I define brave in our work? I would say that our work is brave in different ways. One is obviously the subject of what we are turning our lens on and what we are writing about and what is the subject? Have we seen it before? Why is the story important to us? And how can we create it in a way that also really respects audiences and allows for them to be to be complex and not kind of dumb down things. So I'd say that we're brave in terms of our choices. I'd say that we're brave in terms of how we even try and work and who we hire and making sure that we're not we're a lot more uh, respectful even in terms of how our sets are run and what they look like that there is a synergy between the process and the ultimate thing that we are putting out whether it's a film i'd say that we're we're brave because we are i mean i feel brave just having a company what a terrifying idea <laughs> to yeah. make those decisions and i mean there was one time i saved someone's life on the subway in new york but that kind of happened really quickly without really knowing that this train was coming that's a whole other kind of more traditional idea of bravery but i would say in a way to really listen to you know and deal with your own demons and your own insecurities and start something and stick with it and believe in it and you know and i have an incredible team so i can't really say i do this you know alone at all and so i would say that us having this company and getting to work with people that believe in us and us making these things together that feels pretty brave to me so in artistic space being brave especially as an indie creator and filmmaker comes with the cost there are challenges because skeptics may think that 
anything that it has social impact aspect to it may not be as quote-unquote marketable. Have you um, faced such challenges and what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's a really good question. I think it's the indie filmmaking space specifically, let's say pre-corona, because I think we're about to go into a whole new space that we're all going to navigate in a different way. But I would definitely say pre-corona, I, you know, a lot of people were making the movies they really wanted to make without necessarily thinking about an audience or connecting with them. And, you know, it's, you really do want ultimately to make a movie that moves people. I would say that's the, the, the best movies have done that. And so every time a filmmaker is deciding about their great idea, you can't exclude how to make people feel. You can have a great idea, but if you're not really thinking about when to make people laugh or cry or get scared or feel shock, you're not taking them on that ride with you when they decide to give up, whether it's an hour and a half or three hours or let's say 10 hours of a season or five minutes. And you you see that a lot of the movies that you know, we remember throughout time have made us feel something. And so I think it's really important to think about that even in the writing and the creating process. So Shruti, let's take a step back. When you started your transition into the film world, um, what were some industry protocols or engagements that surprised you? Um, It's interesting because at least on the very specifically film side, I remember when I was in India, And that's where I first worked on a movie. And if you were an assistant director, you were really more of like an, you were more of an apprentice and you were going to become a director. Now in Hollywood and even in the independent American film space, if you are an assistant director, you end up ultimately having more of a producing track. And so I thought that was really strange when I was starting out. The thing that I then found strange eventually was this notion of sticking in your lane and I'm a producer and a director and a writer and I feel very comfortable with all of those things but sometimes the industry doesn't necessarily want to acknowledge or celebrate that and it's about it's this idea of feeling scattered and I don't believe in any of that and I can definitely tell you that the team that works with me at Honto 88 don't fit in those boxes either. And so that's definitely something I want to encourage is people don't need to have the most traditional backgrounds. I didn't. People don't need to have the most traditional educations. You just have to really be curious and work really hard. And I would say, like, I really look to work with very good people who, you know, would care about a rickshaw driver in rural India in the same way that they would with Reese Witherspoon. That's such an interesting perspective. And I noticed that as well as I was Um, looking at your upcoming projects, in some instances, you are a producer, a director, you've written some of those projects, which is wonderful. Do you have any defining moment in your career where you thought or realized that I made it or I did that? I don't think I've ever really had a moment like that in a way. I mean, you kind of are always at least for me, I'm on to the next thing and I'm just working and excited about what we get to do every day. I'd say every day is a challenge and a reward. 
there's no real moment of pause. The pause, if anything, when I'm going for like a hike in the woods in Norway, I'm already thinking about the possibility of the next project. And so I I can't really say that, although this one, I, I would say this one moment, which was just more fun, because of course I'd say that, you know, my parents, it's not like they weren't encouraging. They always were super supportive. I think that the decisions or the advice really came from a place of fear where they didn't necessarily know how to help me should I take a career in the arts. But I remember when I did get this invitation to join this committee and go to the Obama White House for meetings, and I sent that invite to my father and my mother, and I I said, well, guess this wouldn't have happened if I was a banker. (laughs) that That was a funny moment. Shruti, but you do have an MBA, right? Uh, Was that a backup plan, a second career option for you, or you just wanted to get more knowledge in terms of how to run a business or work within that filmmaking space, but with more knowledge of how to do it well? Man, I, you know, I will say, I don't think having an MBA teaches you how to run a business, or at least uh, I sh- I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not really following any of the things I studied, but I think it's actually helpful in a time like this to be nimble and to change all of the rules. Um, I mean, I have an MBA and I have an MFA, and my focus at, at the MBA was social impact and sustainability on one side and also entertainment, media, and tech. And I wouldn't say I took an MBA because it's a backup, but generally, genuinely, because I'm interested in it. And I'm interested in how the world works. And at the same time, in a way, I have like, while I st- started when I was 18 doing economics and and art, when I was 27, I was suddenly like less than a decade later doing an MBA and an MFA at NYU, which is a program that actually exists for this dual master's. And I would say that they were very synergistic. I'd say that you know, when you're looking at when you have an MBA, you can really think about the big picture and you're projecting and you have plans and you have a different you have a strategy. And then with the MFA, it's more of reading what is not there and it's more of a feeling. And I would say that those two approaches, at least for me, when it's come to having this company, making the decisions about the projects that we're making, the people we work with, our collaborators how we work has been, a, you know, a result of that education. That's true. And that's something that's similar to what I did. So I did my MBA and I was supposed to have a career in the corporate sector. It never panned out. We moved here and everything changed. And then I went back and did master's in human rights and international relations, which is completely different. But even to this day, I can see that there are these like remnants of what I learned during MBA that I can apply to even creating the platform that I have created. So it's interesting how whatever education we get, it somehow becomes useful in in some weird way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to, again, my family for giving me that opportunity to have the education I do and encouraging that. So let's talk about film industry, broadly speaking. Right now we see there are mainstream news outlets and 
consumers in general who believe that Asians and Asian Americans are having their moment. And I agree with it, but with caution, because this moment that we are talking about, we are comparing it to what the norm was before, right? When representation was very sparse and ineffectual. But I must say progress is progress. So what are your thoughts on these remarks? And where do you see yourself in this movement of change? Um, I think that we have an incredible amount of visibility now, more than before. And this is something I've talked at length with Sheetal Shaith, who you had on your show, who is a dear friend. And I definitely think it's important that there is this opportunity. What I will say is really important is for an increase in accountability and authenticity in terms of the storytelling and for filmmakers or creators and writers to not shy away from speaking their truth. Because I think that there is a tendency still to fall into perpetuating stereotypes. And there's a lot of uh, shows that exist that, yes, of course, are about the Asian and Asian American experience, but they haven't created any modern characters in that process. And mm -hmm. that is not what that community necessarily looks like anymore. You know, moving forward, we have to be creative and honest. Can you give an example of shows that you think are not doing that? Well, I don't want to kind of name, call out <laughs> shows because it's a small world and everyone knows each other. But um, I just think that honest representation is important. And I'd say that that also comes from what the writing room looks like. If you're going to have a brown show or predominantly brown show with main characters who are South Asian, then why does the writing room only have one South Asian writer? Yeah, that makes so much sense. Shruti, let's pivot a little. Who's your Hollywood crush? Oh, boy. Oh, man. <laughs> I used to. It's really, um, I mean, I think when I was growing up, I definitely had posters on my wall. But I think I've worked with quite a few of them. So I try not to even, at the end of the day, that they're all just like, a bunch of dudes. <laughs> my my crush is my husband. He has nothing to do with this hilarious business. And yeah. Okay, let's rephrase the question. Um, if you could choose to work with anyone and cast them in your production, who would you choose? Oh, wow. I mean, it's really hard to think of casting someone without thinking about what role they would be for. And... Um, someone that obviously I would love to work with is Kate Blanchett. I would say Helen Mirren. I'd say Penelope Cruz. Uh, I remember when I got to direct Tim Robbins for the My Sentence series, it really felt like a masterclass in directing, getting to work with him and how much I learned from that process. And so I think that's, what's really exciting is, um, there's such, uh, you know, for actors like that, of that caliber, there's such a focus on the form and not the fringes. And that's the thing to remember. And there's a lot of incredible actors. And, and I mean, I, when I started 73 Questions, which is a series for Vogue, 
I got to work with a lot of incredible actors and, you know, whether it was Reese Witherspoon or Amy Adams, Sarah Jessica Parker, Daniel Radcliffe, et cetera. And those are all people I would love to continue working with for sure. That's such an interesting series. And it's fun because it's 73 questions, but you feel like you get to know them in such an intimate way. Was that the goal? Yeah. I mean, essentially it was, it was meant to be at first a one-off with Sarah Jessica Parker. At that point, the day we shot this, I had a feeling this was not going to be a, a standalone and we needed to make this one video work and that it was going to go places. And so I think that the, obviously the single shot creates an incredible cinematic tension. And that was the suggestion of the cinematographer, Vincent Pion, which was just really what makes this um, work. Obviously the personal connection being in the house or the personal space of, you know, someone so recognizable is what people, you know, really enjoy. I mean, obviously, yes, to some extent it's rehearsed and the questions have been vetted. And the great thing is like, these are people who are actors or they're artists or musicians. And so there's a, there's a performance aspect to it. It was a really fun series to make. I can't watch them anymore, but because I know too much <laughs> about making them, but I'm so glad they continue, I guess. You know, it's so interesting you said that because when I watch it, in my mind, I'm thinking it's so spontaneous. And that's the beauty of it. Because to the consumer, it comes across as spontaneous, as if they didn't know the questions beforehand. Shruti, I read somewhere that you, you are a global citizen, right? And the way you define places that you've lived in, especially New York, Oman, and India, you call New York your passion, India your spirit, and Oman your soul. When I was reading that, to me, it seems that for you, Oman is home. Is that true? And would you ever want to go back and live there? Oh, I, I would love to go back to Oman. In terms of living there, I don't know if I could necessarily live there because given the type of work I do, which is filmmaking and an element of journalism, Oman is not necessarily known for its freedom of speech practices, but it's still a very beautiful place that um, has incredible soul and incredible culture. And I miss my Omani friends and my neighbors. And I, if we were able to have another house or another home that we could go and like essentially feel replenished in, that would be the place. You know, I keep on thinking that one day we'll have a house um, in Lahore. My husband's family lives there. So it's not that we don't go there. We go there often. We visit our family. But I have this... Um, nostalgic view of what Lahore is. And sometimes I think, you know, we should have one house in Lahore. And when we grow older, my husband and I can just, you know, split time between New York and Lahore because both are such an integral part of who we are now. It's so difficult to pick one, but I still crave for having that connection with Lahore, stronger connection than I have right now. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I mean, and but where did you grow up? Lahore. And how long have you lived in New York? Oh, my God. It's been almost 10 years. Can you believe it? It's crazy how time flies. And now New York is home. Like I've lived in um, the U.S. for more than a decade, but in New York specifically 10 years. And I feel like 
I just can't pick one anymore. I feel like all of us are like nomads. We can't call one place home anymore. Right, exactly. And I'd say that the fact that we have it in that perspective is definitely a place of privilege where we can choose and we can build on. But then when you think of people who are stateless or people who are migrants, like that notion of home has a very different weight. And it's something to just recognize, especially in times like this, where we can be protected in the walls of our house or apartment or, and, you know, have gardens and so on, while we have so many millions of people who don't necessarily have that same perspective. Exactly. Shruti, are there any projects, your upcoming projects that you're really excited about? I have seen a few on your website, but which is one that you're really excited about? Oh, man. Gosh, we have so many. It's like picking between, you know, our many children because (laughs) all our projects are in different stages. I would say our projects are really kind of also focused on who we work with, let's say, as producers or as a company, who are the filmmakers we're producers for. I get really excited to collaborate with an incredible group of talented folks that we've been working with for many years. So But in terms of just a handful of things that I can talk about now, we have a series that we are doing on the Harlem Renaissance with Killer Films and Refinery29 that I'm really excited about on the scripted TV side. We have some doc series that we are developing. Um, I have a project set up at Sony that I am writing. So that's... um, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many different things. We feel very lucky. We started to work in animation, and that's been really interesting in this time of corona to try and pivot and figure out how to make things in a way that's also responsible, that doesn't you know affect the health of people. And we're finding that getting to work in animation still allows us to be creative and careful. Are there any films that you watched that you really liked and you would like to share with the listeners? Um, I really loved the film Atlantics, and that was a movie I watched on Netflix by Mathieu Diop, a French filmmaker, and it won some awards at Cannes last year, and it is set in uh, West Africa, and it is just a beautiful meditation on, you know, a culture that and story that is so specific to her and haunting and beautiful, and so I really Love that. I have so many movies on my list that I need to watch, like Pain and Glory and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Those are very much things that I want to watch. I really enjoyed The Invisible Man. I usually can't watch anything scary, but I thought that that was really masterful in terms of its cinema value. So, To wrap up this conversation, I want to know what art and activism mean to you and what, in your opinion, they mean to America as a country of many origins? Wow, art and activism. I would say the best art was always active and that activism can definitely be supported by art and you're seeing the power of art to get that message across. But at the same time, when you're looking at governments that are fascist, the first thing that they will do is cut arts funding. Mm -hmm. And 
when you see that governments are going to silence journalists, when they're going to cut arts funding, that's when you know that art and activism, it's a reminder how closely art and activism really operate because that has power. Do you think that's happening in America right now? The great thing about America, as much as at this point, we're always so reminded of so many problems, is that, well, at least having grown up in a country that does not have freedom of speech, it's a reminder that in the U.S., there is a lot more freedom when it comes to standing up for pe what people believe in, no matter what side of the equation you're on. And so America definitely has that going for it. I would say that obviously there is a lot of bigotry and racism and sexism and so many issues that have to be confronted with. But I would say that that is something that applies to every country and mm -hmm. that it is a constant battle every day to really navigate it. It's not just really an American problem. America is one of the newest countries in mm -hmm. the history of the world as a country that's made up of immigrants has, I'd say, You know, there are a lot of people who've forgotten that part of its story, forgotten that it was actually Native American land. I think there needs to be a greater reminder. And this is a time, this coronavirus time is a time for reflection. And I would say it would be really important for Americans to actually look at a, a history that may have not been recorded in the way it's deserved and to really remember where what America was even in the 1600s. And Sadia, also to your point about things one doesn't necessarily get to talk about, which during this time I've had a lot of time to reflect, is this idea or the fact that my father's Hindu, my mom's Christian, I grew up in a Muslim country, and Oman follows a very specific sect of Islam called Ibadi, and it's Sunni. And And then I remember when I was in boarding school, my Christian boarding school had a relationship with the Dalai Lama. And then after that, I said I wanted to be Buddhist. And mm. I think even when we're talking about immigration, which really thinks about our migration when it comes to countries, our identity in many ways is, you know, if we want it to be dependent on our choices of what we believe in. And a lot of times that belief is in a religion or not for me having had this incredible exposure to all these religions as you know growing up i would say that i am i'm agnostic and i really appreciate and celebrate so many different cultures my father is also still hindu and reads does a little bible study with my mother my brother is christian and we are able to have these conversations without it you know and and, and it, but it this conversation around interfaith I think is also really important to understand where people are and where people come from because countries have been created based on religion. And at the same time, there needs to be an understanding about our shared humanity. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's one question that I want to ask, which I am I'm like transgressing from what I normally do. I was reading a tweet by a friend today and it really intrigued me. And I thought I'll ask you this question. She said that her parents are immigrants. And sometimes we refer to uh, immigrant parents as immigrant parents. And we shouldn't do that because that in a way defines them in a very one dimensional manner. Uh, now, I am an immigrant parent, and I very proudly say that because 
in my opinion, it's important to reclaim that identity and to be proud of it because I feel like what's happening in America right now, there is this taboo attached to immigrants. And as you pointed out, it is a country of many origins and immigrants and it was a native land um, initially. Do you think we should reclaim it or do you think we should rephrase how we approach this notion of being an immigrant? That's a really wonderful and interesting question. And I don't know if I have like the ultimate answer per se, but I will really reflect on an incredible book that my friend Suketu Mehta wrote that came out last year called This Land is Our Land, which really actually subscribes to the idea of reclaiming the fact, you know, in a way that India was colonized. So if you were there, we have a right to be here. Let's remember what made other countries rich. They came, they stole, (laughs) they plundered, and they took. And it is not necessarily reciprocated. So it's interesting to have that conversation. I think his book has so many incredible arguments just talking about the history of immigration more recently, especially in the time of Trump and Bolsonaro and Modi. And figuring out how we can really think about this world in a different way. The other thing that I will touch upon is, I I, I don't know if this is answering your question. I think at a time right now, we can focus on reclaiming or reframing, but the bigger crisis, and even let's say Corona, that we will be facing is climate change. And we really have to be prepared for what that does because that is going to create borders and walls and migration in a way that I don't even think we can comprehend at this point. So we can spend this time really fighting for a past. I think it's important to meditate on a past and be humbled by it, which is a suggestion. But instead of saying this happened in the past, I think there needs to be its awareness of what's happened before, but then really looking at, you know, future possible problems and being prepared for it. Because what this particular virus has done right now is it actually just highlighted things we already knew, but elevated it to a much greater degree at the expense of so many lives. That's true. Thank you so much, Ruthie. Thank you for taking the time out to do this interview. I'm so glad we were able to do it finally. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry that <laughs> that it was it was it was uh, you know with multiple time zones and so on. Sometimes I get really confused with where I'm at, even so. And also, right now, it's very confusing because it's getting to be summer in Norway, and so I'm looking out my window and. It is so bright outside and it is going to be bright till 11 p.m. Thank you, Shruti. I really appreciate this. Thank Thank you, you. Sadia. So guys, how did you like Shruti's episode? I'm sure you loved it because I surely did. And if you want to get more information about our upcoming episodes, you can check our website and our social media platforms. By the way, we will be asking our listeners, you guys, to help us find some celebrity guests, at least get in contact with them. So stay tuned for information about that. And if you want to get more information about Immigrantly, you can always check our website, immigrantlypod.com. 
as always i hope you guys will join us next week when i bring another guest with an amazing incredible story to tell stay safe and stay distant